talk about Jesus, don't we? We talk about what he's done, sing songs about him, read passages about him. But where is Jesus now? What's he up to? Uh, of course, we know he was born, Christmas time and all that. He taught good things. He was tempted. He suffered. He was baptized. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. But what's he doing now? Uh, we have looked over the past few months at different psalms from the Old Testament, and there are different ways we could go about studying psalms. Uh, but we've chosen to kind of look at psalms that have different flavors, different genres, different themes. So we've seen psalms by King David and the prophet Moses. We've seen psalms of despair and worship, joy, sadness. This morning we come to Psalm 110, and here we see an answer to us about what Christ is doing now. A psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. As you look at this psalm, you see two things that the Lord says. One in verse 1 and one in verse 4. These are oracles from the Lord to David's Lord. So let's look at those. The first oracle. David begins with an oracle and God says to this Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So who's exactly involved here? I mean, we have David. It says it's a psalm by him. But then we have two lords. We have a Lord in caps and a Lord in a capital and then lowercase. Throughout the Psalms and throughout the Old Testament, we see that when the Lord, word Lord is capitalized, like that second word there in verse 1, it's a translation of the Hebrew name Yahweh, the covenant name for God. Uh, this name directs us to see God as a particular promise-making, promise-keeping king of his people. It's not a generic name for God. It's a specific name that shows his faithfulness and love. So here we have David seeing Yahweh addressing someone else, and he calls this other person his Lord, David's Lord. Who's that? Well, for David, this refers to the king of God's people, Israel. So David reigned as king, but then after him, others were raised up, Solomon, others who would rule under God's authority over God's people. But there's something even more going on in here. If you remember the passage Megan read for us earlier from Matthew, we see Jesus addressing the Pharisees and asking them about this verse. And he says, uh, he asked them whose son, the Messiah, this promised king of Israel, the Savior, would be. And they say, David. And they're right, right? In a way, the Messiah would come in the line of David. But Jesus makes the point that actually the Messiah would be more than just a regular king. He would be David's Lord. He would be the Lord of the king. Uh, later in Acts, Acts chapter 2, Peter would also quote Psalm 110, and he'd make the point crystal clear by saying, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. So with the inspired commentary of the New Testament, we see here that David is speaking of the king of Israel, but he's ultimately pointing forward to the exalted final king of Israel to come, to Jesus. We can't know how much the Holy Spirit revealed to David as he wrote this, but we do know what he's revealed to us. That is, that is that this psalm is about Jesus. The gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke all make that point. 
This psalm shows God's exaltation of King Jesus to his right hand after his ascension into heaven. It's a psalm recognizing the royal rule of Christ as he sits down at the right hand of God and thrown on high, having completed redemption. The book of Hebrews picks up on this. Hebrews 10, verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. You see those words from Psalm 110? Christ sat down at the right hand of God and waited for his enemies to be made his footstool. Psalm 110 here is pointing ahead to Christ and to his victory and triumph. The Bible's amazing. It hangs together so perfectly, providing a great storyline that works seamlessly to lead us to a climax to Christ. It's not an anthology of disparate tales. It's not a collection of greatest works. It's a story. Brother, sister, Christian, if you're tempted to doubt the veracity of this book, here in Psalm 110, you have great evidence of its consistency and truth. I think it should boost your confidence this morning to see King David writing of a king to come, and then Jesus seeing, and the, Old Test- and the New Testament fathers repeatedly seeing that fulfillment in Christ, that fulfillment of Psalm 110. The glue that holds the word of God together is the story of a coming king, and that king is Jesus. As we read more of this psalm, we see David speaking of the rule of this king. And church, we here we see beyond David to the triumphant rule of our king Jesus in heaven right now. Verse 2, the Lord is sending out his scepter from Zion. Verse 3, the people of God respond to this king on the day of battle by freely giving themselves to him. Verse 5, on the day of his wrath, King Jesus will shatter all other rival kings. Verse 6, the judgment of King Jesus will, will be both final, filling the nations with corpses, and total over the wide earth. It will devastate those who formerly held high positions of power. This will be the day of his power, verse 3. Christian, your king is currently exalted above all enemies, and one day he will secure final victory over them. The image of his enemies becoming his footstool refers to that victorious act that kings would do after they won a battle. Where they take the enemy kings and place their feet on their necks. I mean, what a picture, right? If you want to show your power, that's, that's a pretty good picture. My feet on your neck. If you want to show your helplessness, that's a good picture. My neck is under your feet, right? King Jesus reigns totally and finally. What great confidence and hope we have this morning, church. We don't follow a helpless king. We follow a triumphant king. So I wonder, Christian, do you delight yourself in the service of this king? Just like those people in verse 3 who, who offer themselves willingly to him. Are you doing that in your service to your king, Christian? You might say, yeah, I'm here. I prayed this morning. I read my Bible this week. But consider your heart. Are you submitting your life to this king? Are you offering yourself to him without reservation? Are you willing him for him to use you in any way? Where might you be resisting that reign that he has in your life? Sin is the ultimate act of resisting the power and authority of the king. When we sin, we act like we know better than him. We act like we have toppled him from his throne and we've seated ourselves on it. But friends, look to those people in Psalm 110 who try to topple Jesus from his throne. It doesn't end well. King Jesus always wins. So think carefully about where you might be trying to shake off his rule this morning. Is there conviction you're trying to ignore? Are there areas of your life you don't want God to intrude upon? Repent of those things. Forsake the irrational pursuit of building your own kingdom. It'll become crumbling around you. Look to your king. Offer yourself to him as a living sacrifice. There will be great peace in that. That's a promise.
That's the first oracle, Jesus as king. What's the second oracle? Verse 4. David shows Yahweh making an oath that cannot be changed and saying to his Lord, to King Jesus, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What does that mean? Well, David had some priestly functions during his reign. Other kings did as well. But when we see this psalm uh, in the light of Christ, we see that Jesus is not only King Jesus, but he's priest Jesus. David recalls a key moment in the history of God's people in Genesis 14, where the patriarch of God's people, Abraham, has just come back from winning a battle. And he's met by this king named Melchizedek, literally king of righteousness. He's also the, the king of Salem. So he's the king of peace. But we don't know much about Melchizedek in Genesis. He's a mysterious figure. We don't know if he was born, when he was born or when he died. He doesn't really show up again much. But that's on purpose. Melchizedek comes on the scene for a reason, and that's to foreshadow Christ. We don't see any beginning or end to Melchizedek's life. Same with Christ. He's eternal. He never began and he'll never end. We see in Melchizedek a priesthood predating the priesthood of Levi and Aaron for the people of Israel. And in Christ, we see a priesthood that's greater than Levi and Aaron. Jesus is the greater priest, the greatest priest. Here's how Hebrews puts it. Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. This can get a bit confusing, so think about it like this. In the Old Testament, there are two lines of priests. First is Melchizedek. No one came after him. Since we don't see him die, there's sort of an eternality to his priesthood. And then the second is the line of Aaron, the Levitical priesthood. Those were the priests that God set up to intercede for his people throughout the Old Testament. Remember, God is holy. His attitude towards sin is serious. He can't tolerate it. And so in order to show mercy to his people and bless them despite their sin, he brings about a system of sacrifices and priests so that his people can have their sins continually atoned for. Sin is a federal offense against the king of the universe, punishable by death. We all deserve death from God because he's just and we're evil. Yet in his mercy, God put into a place a way his people in the Old Testament could approach him, by sacrifice. The priests were there to intercede for the people of God, to mediate for them. But that system was ultimately broken. I mean, priests grew old and died. Animals had to be sacrificed constantly. This law of God became a weary weight for his people. But God wasn't done. That whole system pointed forward to a greater priest to come. And here in Psalm 110, we see that a king would come who would also be a priest. Coming in a new line of priests. Mediating a new way, a new law for God's people. This priesthood would be superior. This priest would not die. For he would come in the eternal line of Melchizedek and not in the line of Aaron where the priest died and died and died. This priest would offer one sacrifice once and for all. This priest would not die but would always live to make intercession for God's people. This priest would be King Jesus himself. And the amazing thing is that this priest king wouldn't offer the life of an animal for the sins of his people. That would never need to happen again. No, as we read before from Hebrews, he would offer one final single sacrifice for sin. He would lay down his own life. The king, the exalted king of Psalm 110, would lay down his life for his rebellious enemies. 
the king, the exalted king of Psalm 110, would undergo the wrath of God for his people. The priest, the kingly priest of Psalm 110, would not offer a sacrifice on an altar, but would actually get on that altar himself as the final sacrifice. Friends, this is the wonderful news of the gospel. We cannot please God in our sin. We deserve his punishment, but in mercy, God sent his son to take our punishment in our place. If you try to earn God's love on your own, you will be crushed by the weight of your sin and the demands of God's justice, just like the law did the people of Israel. But if you see the new law and the new priest, if you put your trust in Christ, the priest who laid down his life for you, you will find eternal hope. He has laid down his life to cover the guilt and shame that you're desperately trying to cover from everyone else. If you trust in him, he wipes that away. So repent of your sin. Place your trust in him if, you, if you're here and you're not a believer in Christ. This is the peace and the hope and the steadfast anchor for your soul that this priest provides. And those of us who are Christians, this is what Jesus is doing now. He is our king, he's exalted over all, and he's our priest, interceding for us, pleading his case before God, the judge. He is the one who is highly exalted after being humiliated even to death, experiencing our hell for us. He now acts as our mediator before God. The, the other line of priests, the line in the, the of Aaron and the Levitical priests would constantly stand to accomplish their sacrifices, standing day after day for years to atone for the sin of God's people. But Jesus hung as a final sacrifice, and then what did he do? He sat down. His work is done. God will not change his mind. He has accomplished our salvation through this priest king. Christian, isn't it wonderful to know that God has not changed his mind? Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. He has sworn to make Jesus our priest king, and he has not wavered from that, from that oath. Because this is our God, we can never be finally shaken, can we? We have a perfect mediator who is exalted right there at the right hand of God. Do you see what an amazing difference it makes for us that this is what Jesus is doing now? He is our exalted priest king interceding for us. Do you see what an amazing difference it makes, Christian, that he's praying for us right now? Pleading his death as the reason God can receive us, permit us to draw near into his loving presence. You know, we have several lawyers in this congregation. I'm thankful for that, because if I ever end up in court, I have a few guys on speed dial, right? Don't bail out on me. No pun intended. And I'm sure you lawyers would be able to defend me quite well if it came to that. But what if we had our first meeting, you said, okay, what, what are you up against? And I said, well, actually, this court is God's court, and I'm on trial for my sin. Uh, if that was the case as great lawyers as you guys are, I wouldn't be able to rely on any of you, would I? 
None of us could. In that court, we're all guilty before the judge. But church, look at Jesus. He ever lives to intercede for us as our great high priest, to plead our case before God, to plead the merits of his own blood in our place. Right now, he's saying to God, don't look at their sin, it's been washed away. Look at my righteousness, I've given it to them. And our loving God is pleased with that. And he sets on us the same love that he sets on his one and only beloved son. Christian, what confidence we should have that Jesus is our priest, that Jesus is our mediator. Robert Murray McShane once reflected, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. What a strong king we serve. What a wonderful priest we have. How courageous ought we to be as Christians with our priest king on our side. With our priest king praying for us. You ever look up to somebody in the faith, a, a mature Christian, and you say, would you pray for me in this way? And there's certain comfort in that because you kind of feel like that person almost like has an end with the Lord that you don't because they're just so great. You know, that kind of, I'm so glad that so-and-so is praying for me. That's great. That's what we are as a church. But everybody here is a Christian. You have priest Jesus praying for you. You have the king praying for you. So let's pray that we would be bold in the service to this king, this Psalm 110 priest king. He would be strong in the strength of our Savior until he returns. Now this psalm lays out Jesus as king and Jesus as priest and Jesus as returning warrior king, right? All his enemies subdued under his footstool. Our priest king is coming back. Let us be bold until he comes. In closing, hear the words of Hebrews chapter 9. This is true of us Christians. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, like the priests of old, which are copies of the true things, but he has gone into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as is it appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment... So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Church, let's eagerly wait for our priest king. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our priest and king, thank you for coming to save us. Thank you for ruling and reigning for laying down your life to save us. 
Thank you for praying for us even now. We praise you and we offer you our lives. Come soon, in Jesus' name.